their opening act were a band we'd never heard of called Lost Alone. And we spent the whole night after the concert and much of the next day talking <laughs> about Lost Alone. Like the next day, me and my partner just heard Kira in another room, like burst out giggling. And it was just because Kira had remembered what we were about to talk about. I was giggling so much that Dean checked if I was having a seizure. And what she had remembered was the lead singer of Lost Alone, Steve something. Before their final number, he... <laughs> He started talking about how good the catering was on the tour, and he used this is the first phrase he used that really stuck with us. Is he said he never had he never enjoyed such strong cuisine on a tour, <laughs> but then and he was telling us like you know I'm gonna go eat loads of fucking food afterwards, and he specifically said he, that he was going to dine hard and that he wanted us to remember him as a man who was about to dine hard. I just want to say, Steve from Lost Alone, if you're out there listening to us, we will never forget you as a man who was about to dine hard on only the strongest cuisine. Welcome to The Sunday Presents with me, Kira Maloney. And me, Dean Buckley. The Sunday Presents is a podcast where Kira and I take turns showing each other favorite films of ours that the other hasn't seen before. It's also where we very arbitrarily take turns doing this intro because (laughs) over the very short existence of this podcast, our very thin (laughs) format has already broken down. Yeah, the the format's a a mess. Anyways, (laughs) it's Christmas. Yeah. And so we're Christmasing. <clears throat> motherfuckers that's true with a obviously a christmas film that is for some reason a controversy about whether or not it's a christmas film i see those looks yes the movie was originally released in summer but it took place on christmas eve which makes it a christmas film i don't know this seems very unorthodox but you know what's not a controversy that it's one of the greatest action movies ever made die hard yippee motherfucker why is it called Ooh. that? I don't really know. It doesn't go to the the content of the film whatsoever to call it Die Hard, but those are two aggressive words. There, it's you know? a great title. I just I don't yeah. I don't get it. If anybody wants to take a sec to just like boo me for not having seen Die Hard until now. Oh yeah, obviously I'm the one who'd seen Die Hard before. It couldn't be it, more. As anyone clear. familiar with the the concept of this podcast? would guess if you listen to like two episodes of this you would not guess that i was the one who'd seen die hard and you had yeah no i've i've seen die hard with a vengeance not exactly christmas is it so i will say there is a part of me that wants to be like it's die hard it's the plot of die hard i hadn't seen die hard until a couple days ago and i knew the plot of die hard from watching other TV shows and movies. So what if I didn't go to college? John McClane didn't go to college. He defeats the bad guys using street smarts, and I got street smarts. Mac, you do realize John McClane's a fictional character who's voicing lines written by screenwriters who almost certainly went to college. Yeah, but Bruce Willis dropped out of college, and that supports Mac's argument. Yeah, uh, no, it doesn't, Dee. 
And the fact that you can't understand that leads me to believe that you are a complete and total dum-dum. Charles, <gasps> this is the floor that John McClane ran on with his bare feet. Take my picture with it. <laughs> this is the window where John McClane said, welcome to the party, pal. Take my picture with it. This is the event where John McClane said, come out to the ghost, we get together, have a few laughs, take my picture with it. This is the space where even though it's not really evident in the dialogue, you can tell John McClane realizes he should have been a better husband to Holly Gennaro. Take my picture with it. 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 But then he unclasps the watch and hunts falls. Die hard reference. But nevertheless, it's Christmas Eve and John McClane, played by Bruce Willis, is on a plane flying into Los Angeles. He's a New York cop. But his wife, Holly, moved out to L.A. with their two kids six months ago. She had a good job, turned into a great career. Now that means she had to move here. You're very fast, Argyle. He's met at the airport by first-time limo driver Argyle. Argyle takes him to Nakatomi Plaza, a skyscraper owned by the Japanese multinational of the same name, where Holly works and where John is meeting her for the office Christmas party on the 30th floor. They have a bit of a tiff because mainly because john notices that holly is using her uh, maiden name at work holly gennaro and you know he's already feeling pretty bothered about the whole her moving to los angeles with their kids thing and they're not divorced or even necessarily heading towards a divorce but things are a bit strained and john loses his shit about the name thing a bit and then she storms off and then he's like why am i the biggest idiot in the world <laughs> but Her storming off leaves him alone in a separate room from everyone else, just in time for the real fun to begin. The tower is very quickly and methodically taken over by a gang of apparent German terrorists led by Hans Gruber, played by the late Alan Rickman. They lock down all the elevators, they lock down all the parking garage entrances and every door except the revolving door at the front basically they cut off all the phone lines and they show up on the 30th floor with their machine guns and announce their intention to punish the nakatomi corporation for their many vague crimes (laughs) Uh, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen ladies and gentlemen Due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. Gruber takes Mr. Takagi, who's the highest-ranked executive at the Los Angeles branch of the Nakatomi Corporation, I guess, hostage. Well, he takes them all hostage, but he takes... He takes Takagi to a different room because he wants the code to the vault full of bearer bonds on the same floor. He reveals to Takagi and to the audience, but not crucially to anyone else in the film, that they are not terrorists at all, but in fact a gang of sophisticated thieves who are merely posing as terrorists in order to prolong their access to the vault. And later we will find out also. Pretending to be terrorists is very important to the overall arc of the plot. Takagi is either unwilling or unable to unlock the vault. He says he doesn't have the codes, but I was never satisfied that he didn't think he could just bluff his way out of it. John has been sneaking around. He's got his gun on him. He doesn't like flying. and His seatmate on the plane told him that the best way to get over having just flown is to take off your shoes and like scrunch the carpet with your toes. So John is barefoot throughout the film. 
and that is not good for John. When he sees Takagi get his face blown off, he makes a, a noise and they chase him a little bit, but they don't really see him and they're not 100% sure there actually was anyone there. And he flees to the 32nd floor. All the floors above 30 are still under construction. He gets up to the 32nd floor and he pulls the fire alarm to try and summon, you know, emergency services. But the gang, they just call and say it was a false alarm and send one guy up to kill John, which is one guy too few. He manages to kill this his first German and what he does about about it is he sends the guy's corpse down in one of the elevators to the 30th floor with now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Written on him. And thus begins the great game of cat and mouse in Nakatomi Plaza. So initially John's focus is trying to like get the police to come and just like to have any sort of backup or even just inform anyone that anything is going on at Nakatomi Plaza, which takes a while. Like he, he gets on the emergency radio band and keeps trying to tell them about the emergency. And they're just like, sir, this is for emergencies only. No fucking shit, lady. Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? And eventually, like, one cop gets sent to just do a quick drive-by of Nakatoe Plaza and see if it's, like, full of gunmen or whatever. Which, obviously, it isn't from the outside. It's a, like, 30-something story skyscraper. Although, the responding officer, Sergeant Al Powell, the only good cop in Los Angeles, (laughs) does see, like, gunfire on the rooftop from a distance. So, I mean, there's something going on in Nakatoe Plaza. But... His initial uh, sweep it does not turn up anything. Luckily, uh, John throws the dead body of one of the Germans that he's taken down off the tower onto Al's car. And that sort of finally gets someone to notice something's go- happening at Nakatomi <laughs> Plaza. Uh, Al ends up John's only consistent ally throughout the rest of the film. The situation also drags in the deputy chief of police. Either his first name or his surname is Dwayne. Because I remember thinking he said it in a really, like, annoying way. This is Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne T. Robinson. Paul Gleason from The Breakfast Club. He is played by Paul Gleason from The Breakfast Club, that's true. There's Thornburg, played by William Atherton, who is Walter Peck from <laughs> Ghostbusters. He, he's a unscrupulous news reporter who, like, is the first person down at the station to hear about what's going on in Nakatomi and... Yeah, fuck him. That's 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 the main thing about Richard. We'll get I mean we'll get back to Thornburg later, but that's the main thing about it. You guys have nothing in common. Oh yeah? Tell that to William Atherton, the man we both consider to be the second best diehard villain. <gasps> she meant it. All these people are on the the same like emergency line like on their mm. radios cuz the the phones have been cut. Yeah. Initially John won't give his name away on the radio yeah. because that they might notice that he's Holly's wife. Or he's Holly's husband, and he's take Holly's her. Holly's wife. <laughs> I know what I mean. And oh, wow. uh, you know, like take her hostage and use her as leverage against him. But anyway, yeah. So uh, after getting the police there, John uh, gradually starts to regret it due to the behavior of any police officer higher ranks than Sergeant Al Powell. <laughs> They try to storm the building almost immediately with no information except what John has said. And on the one hand, it's like Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne is like, how can we trust anything John says? Or, well, Roy, Roy Rogers, he he decides to use as his 
is nom de guerre. How can we trust anything this guy says? How do we know he's not doing, you know, he's not one of them or he's not a crank, blah, 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 blah. But also he's going to raid a skyscraper with a SWAT team based on the same evidence he is discounting whenever Al's like, hey, maybe we should not storm a building that allegedly has like 30 plus hostages, guys with machine guns and fucking rockets and stuff. Anyway, they do storm and I have to be honest, I still don't 100% understand why John did this, but to end the assault of the SWAT team and then their, their big car, they call it a car, it's a tank. Earlier, John had stolen a bag of C4 of one of the dead German guys he killed and he throws it down the elevator shaft and it explodes and takes out like a whole floor of the building. Geronimo, motherfucker. And I guess it stops the guys who are firing the rockets at the car, which John seemed concerned about. I'm just not 100% sure I understand the thought process that led him to go, okay, there's some guys shooting some rockets from a floor I don't know. I'm going to throw this bomb down the elevator shaft and see what happens. But it does work, so what do I know? In John's defense, I don't think he realized how much explosive he was packing when he threw that. Oh, he... He definitely didn't. He put like, it's a brick of C4 and he puts an extra charge in it. Fuck it. He is improvising. I fully understand that John is, I just, that one, I didn't quite get. But hey, I'm not John McClane. What would I know? Oh, I should also say that the, 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 this evolving situation also finally alerts Argyle, who's been in the limo in the parking carriage his entire time, and finally lets him know that he's in a hostage situation. He's he did not the time of his life. <laughs> he did not realize he was in a hostage situation. He was on the phone to his missus and fucking watching TV and drinking <laughs> and smoking a cigar. Look at him, Olivia's having fun. After the uh, big fucking explosion, um, Holly's office co-worker Ellis, who looks, who, who, who to all my keeping up with the Kardashians heads out there, really looks like Scott Disick when he's not doing well sobriety-wise. Um, Ellis is also not doing well sobriety-wise. <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, well, the, John, John walks into Holly's office with Mr. Takagi and... <laughs> And, and Ellis is just doing lines off Holly's desk. Anyway, he's like, enough of this. That John McClane guy is going to get us all killed if he doesn't stop interfering. I'm going to go to Hans Gruber and work this out. Hans, Bobby, I'm your white knight. And he gives John's name and job to Gruber and John's like, what the fuck? And it seems like to both John and the audience, Ellis is about to give Holly up. But he actually says that John and him are old friends. He's not quite as big of a cunt as he seemed. He comes in talking like a hotshot negotiating with... And, like, John is on the thing like... Ellis, you shouldn't be doing this. You gotta tell these people you don't know me because they're about to fucking kill you. And Ellis is like... <laughs> And then Gruber blows his fucking <laughs> brains out. <laughs> the Germans split up to find John because he has the detonators they need for a part of their plan as of yet unrevealed. There are some explosives on the roof. We know that because Gruber goes to check on them where he meets John McClane. Except John doesn't know what Hans looks like. And Hans puts on a 
reasonably convincing American accent. <laughs> Please, God, no, you're one of them, aren't you? You're one of them. No, no. Don't kill me, please! Don't please! Don't kill me! Don't kill me, please! please whoa, please, whoa, please, whoa! Please, relax, please. relax! I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm not gonna hurt you. John takes Hans downstairs and gives him a gun, and then Hans pulls the gun on him and is like, into the walkie-talkie, he's like, you know, Geschlichter verboten, ha 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 ha, whatever. And then he tries to shoot John, but no bullets. Fucking stupid, Hans. And John. Almost kills Hans, but then Hans's friends show up in the elevator and he, he runs off, you know, gunning them. He gets caught in this office and he he can't quite get shoot at them and they can't quite shoot him. So Hans gets Carl, his second in command, has this blood vendetta against John because the first guy John killed was his brother. He's like, shoot the glass. So that John basically has to, you know, like fucking crawl through it. Remember that John has no shoes. <laughs> yes, and he manages to slip away when Carl throws a flashbang. He manages to like sprint through the door. The next time we see him, he's pulling the biggest pieces of glass you've ever seen out of his feet. It's so gross. And while he's he's fleeing, he drops the detonators, which means the plan's back on for Gruber and the boys. After this, the FBI show up. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. And as their name suggests, they're both complete dicks. They're like so excited to do crimes. Like they're so excited to just go in there with loads of guns and kill the terrorists and, you know, maybe a few hostages. There's a bit where they're like flying in to pick up the hostages and they're like, so what do you think? I think, I think we'll lose about 25% of the hostages. I can live with that. It's like... They're cartoonishly callous. And they also order the power to be shut down for the whole block of the city or whatever. Which is exactly what the Germans wanted. Because the last lock on the vault is an electromagnetic lock. And the only way to disable it is to shut down a whole city block. That's why they pretended to be terrorists. The circuits that cannot be cut are cut automatically in response to a terrorist incident. You ask for miracles, dear. I give you the FBI. So they've got their bearer bonds, and they pretend to agree to release the hostages on the roof. I should say, I guess, that Hans, <laughs> in furtherance of his pretending to be a terrorist thing, demands the release of... In Northern Ireland, the seven members of the new Provo Front... Canada, the five imprisoned leaders of Liberté de Québec. In Sri Lanka, the nine members of the Asian Dawn. What the fuck? I read about them in Time magazine. And the FBI say they've achieved these ends. Lying, no doubt. He's <laughs> lying, they're lying, everyone's lying. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he agrees to send, you know the hostages to the roof to be picked up with them in helicopters. You know, they're going to use them as human shields or whatever. Little does he know that the FBI are sending in attack helicopters and planning to kill them. Little do the FBI know that the whole fucking roof has been rigged to explode and they're planning to blow up all the hostages and the helicopters and the FBI agents and just sort of letting everybody presume that they also died. Yeah, no one's going to go looking for you if you're dead. But McLean figures it out, figures out what's happening and gets to the rooftop and just about manages to get the hostages off uh, while under fire from the FBI who think he's a terrorist. 
He manages to get them off, all the hostages off the roof, and the roof explodes. John has to rappel down the side of the building on a fire hose. He's so upset with himself for getting himself into this situation. And, yeah, the roof explodes, taking out the helicopter and the agents Johnson. I need some more FBI guys, I guess. And John swings in through a lower window just as the, the wheel of the fire hose comes unhooked from the ledge that he jumped from. He's alive and he's getting really pissed off at this point. He has a fight with Carl, the, the big German who's upset with him for killing his brother and seemingly kills him. Seemingly. 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 But then that bastard Thornburg, that fucking journalist scum, he goes to the McLean's house and gets past the nanny by telling her this might be the kid's last time to speak to their parents, blah, blah, blah. He says something worse than that. Oh, he also says I'm going to call immigration. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he starts interviewing their like, like six year old children, like they're young children. And Hans sees the little girl, their little girl on, on the TV and realizes that he has seen that little girl in Holly's office in her family photos. She had earlier, out of anger, put down the only photo she has with John in it. And he picks it up, and he's got it all put together. In the basement, Argyle sees the main, like, vault cracker guy, like, unroll a, like, some sort of emergency vehicle from the back of the van, the truck they originally drove in in. And Argyle's like, oh, that's the getaway vehicle. They're going to escape among the emergency services and so he rams the fucking limo into the side of it and then cold cocks the vault cracker mclean finds his way to groover who has holly hostage and he only has uh, his handgun and two bullets left but he limps out with his bloody blackened feet holding a machine gun groover has holly and he's like drop the gun and John drops the gun. Groover's about to shoot him. And John starts laughing. And Hans starts laughing. And Hans' nearby goon starts laughing. And then the camera shows that John has taped his revolver to his upper back. And he pulls it out. And he sh shouts at Holly to get her to move. And then he shoots Groover once. The henchman once. And he's out of bullets. But... Gruber's falling, but he grabs hold of Holly and he's falling out the window and he's holding on to Holly's Rolex watch that she got earlier for being so good at her job and which Ellis pointed out at John to make him feel emasculated. But John unhooks the Rolex right before Gruber can shoot him in the head and Gruber falls many, many, many feet to his death. That's not a hostage. Holly and, and John get out of the building and they meet Al properly. And then Carl is still alive and he's like, ah, they're going to kill you, John McLean. But Al, who hasn't fired his gun since he accidentally shot a kid years ago, is why he became a desk jockey. He pulls out his gun and he shoots Carl so many fucking times. He just, he just keeps shooting him. And, and then uh, Thornburg comes up to try to talk to them and Holly punches him in the face. And then Argyle crashes through the parking garage door and somehow is not immediately pelted with machine gun fire. 
And John says to Al, oh, he's with me. And uh, him and Holly get in the, the limo and, and drive off together. The end of the film. Still great. The role of John McClane, it took a long time for it to land with Bruce Willis. And it's hard to imagine mm. anyone but Bruce Willis in it. Can you guess who it was initially offered to? I mean, Schwarzenegger, Lundgren, Gibson. These are perfectly fine guesses. But first, it was offered to Frank Sinatra. Sinatra? Fucking Frank Sinatra. When? Because... The book that Die Hard is based on is a sequel to another book. Okay. And the movie of that book, Frank Sinatra played the lead role. I think it was called like The Detective or something. So I think that they legally had to offer it first to Sinatra. Okay. Even though he was like... Yeah, I was about to say. Well, I believe that in the book, John McClane's character is older. Like he's visiting his daughter, not his wife. Okay. But not... Frank Sinatra in the late 80s old. <laughs> the alternate universe where an elderly Frank Sinatra played John McClane. I'd love to visit, but I don't think I'd want to live there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then it was offered to, you know, all the big guns, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Burt Reynolds, before finally landing with uh, that guy from the TV show Moonlighting. What's his name? You would think that that would have kept the budget down, but they actually paid him five million in nineteen eighty eight dollars for no reason. Jesus. (laughs) So I know. Obviously, I've grown up. Even though I'm only seeing tired now, I grew up in a post John McClane world where. Like when I know that when Die Hard came out, the idea of the guy from Moonlighting being an action hero was almost like, <laughs> like a late night joke. But yeah. then I grew up in the world created by Die Hard, where Bruce Willis is primarily known as an action actor. I've never watched Moonlighting, and I really want to at some point. But the idea of Bruce Willis doing a will they won't they on a like a rom com spy show seems <laughs> very strange. But Bruce Willis is. is is wonderful in this yes. movie and i mean one of the key things that makes die hard work and everybody says this but i will also say it is bruce willis's vulnerability like his physical vulnerability yes like he might fucking die <laughs> at any mm-hmm. moment and he gets mm-hmm. really properly hurt and he doesn't even have shoes like there's yeah. nothing like kind of super heroic about him the way that a lot of action stars especially in the 80s the state had. of his feet at the end of the oh. film like they're they're blackened on top from all the explosions the multiple explosions he survived yeah i mean he doesn't he's... literally go through all the wounds of christ but he has the feet sorted people talked about that it's like he goes through you know, through, yeah. through a passion, yeah. I was going to call him friend of the pod. He's not at all. Um, but Richard Brody <laughs> has, has written Sorry. about Die Hard being like almost like a religious drama about the redemptive power of violence or mm. or being redeemed through violence. And I think that that's a, a bit much, but it's fun to think about. 
Yeah, just to clarify my laugh, uh, Richard Brody, neither friend nor foe of the podcast, but the idea of him being a friend <laughs> of the podcast is very funny. Brody? Why is Brody texting you? Who needs to say this? I loved it. I loved Die Hard. It's Die Hard. You say, could, how could anyone not like it or whatever, but it got a pretty mixed reception on, on release. That um, is stupid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's now basically universally acknowledged as probably the greatest action movie ever made. At least if I met somebody who was like, you know what sucks? Die Hard. I would assume they were a troll. What were these fools saying back in the day? <laughs> what was their problem with this? Okay, well, everybody liked Alan Rickman in it. Well, duh. Duh. Yeah, a lot of people didn't like Bruce Willis in it, and I'm not really sure why. Vincent Camby said he wasn't tough enough. Okay, that's incredible to me. The thing about John McClane, right, and I mean this entirely (laughs) praise, is he's a dirty little fucking New York rat. He will survive no matter what hideous shit you put him through. And he is able to outwit (laughs) these super sophisticated German villains quoting their literature and blah, blah, blah because he's getting out there alive because he's John Clay. And the idea that he's not tough just because he <laughs> takes damage. I'm saying Vincent can be saying that, but like most of the reviews that are anti-Bruce Willis are just basically going like, well, he's not very good and not explaining what they mean by that. So at yeah. least Vincent can be said something, even though it's fucking yeah. stupid. <laughs> I think a lot of people, there's like the, like an anti-television snobbery. Oh, of course. Especially at that time, there was a much clear division between film stars and tv stars bruce willis got offered this role like after 30 people so there was no like big plan to make bruce willis a movie star i know he had tried to move from tv to movies already before die hard and it didn't take but it took this time i'll I'll tell you that opposite bruce willis of course you have alan rickman in his film debut it's like to walk on to your first film set and give give one of the most iconic villain performances in cinema. Going in blind without checking, I'm assuming Gruber is in the top ten like AFI on one of their stupid lists. You can't make a list that has Hannibal Lecter and Norman Bates and Darth Vader in it without including Hans Gruber. It's interesting because like on the page there isn't really that much to him. He's um, all quips and quotes. Yeah. the You know the bit where he says, and When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. That's just made up. And I found this out because I was looking up that line that I assumed was some famous shit from antiquity. And I was trying to just like pull the quote for something else, totally unrelated. And like, no, yeah. it's from Die Hard. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? It, like, broke my brain. I just assumed it was, like, Plutarch. You don't get any kind of background on Gruber. The whole switcheroo of, like, pretending to be terrorists while actually being thieves. The, there's that great moment where Holly's like, For all your posturing, all your little speeches, you're nothing but a common thief. And he and says, he's like, I am an exceptional thief, Mrs. McLean. And since I'm moving up to kidnapping, you should be more polite. Yeah, like, Um, the only bit of quote-unquote backstory we get for Gruber is that he was in a German leftist organization, and that might have been part of the setup for this job. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But he feels so... Like, he's just just instantly iconic. You know, the way that, like you said, like, Darth Vader or 
or Hannibal Lecter. It's like it's just yeah. Like, he even yes. uh, arrives on screen the same way that Darth Vader does, marching through a group of his own goons. Maybe that's the, <laughs> maybe that's the secret. Like he always feels like three steps ahead. He like, usually is, but you know, John blows up so much shit, <laughs> and Hans was still. Until John shot him in the shoulder, Hans was still gonna get away with it. <laughs> gonna get away with everything, you know? Like he stays so calm, even as on paper the plan is, is getting fucked up. Who is the biggest asshole in this assholes all the way down of a movie? It's a good question. So like to me the two main candidates are of course Thornberg, the reporter. <sighs> the worst um especially since you reminded me about that threatening to call immigration but also and i have to go with seniority here special agent johnson of the fbi <laughs> agent johnson who i guess is his subordinate is the one who says i can live with that but you know what special agent johnson is doing when he says that he's wearing a backwards baseball cap and toting the biggest fucking machine gun you've ever seen because he's excited <laughs> to do a flyby and fucking gun a, a hostage filled like, rooftop. This is just like Saigon or something, doesn't he say? He, between he those two guys. Did, did war crimes in Vietnam and then came back and was like, how do I keep that going? Between the two of them, I guess I have to pick Johnson because of the, the murderousness. <laughs> but in terms of who's like spiritually more of an asshole, Thornburg. I had totally forgotten that Al had like m murdered a little boy <laughs> yeah yeah I, mean, I didn't uh, know that was one of the things I didn't know about Die Hard actually and, uh. <laughs> and the fact that he's redeemed by shooting another person but I do think it was a, a really smart move to make his character black because I feel like that could have made for some very uncomfortable viewing in the project yeah yeah if he, if he was white <laughs> early on I was worried not worried exactly but I was a bit like uh when they were setting up this sort of like idea of John as emasculated by Holly's career and that this was going to be a sort of like emasculated man proves his manliness and wins back the woman kind of a movie. It's not really that, even though it has sort of the same very broad strokes of one of those films, because like within a very short amount of time, John is screaming, Macho assholes, no, no! At the cops storming the place. He yeah. very much comes to like realize that he, that he fucked up. In the way yeah, when he think when he thinks he's likely to die, he you know is telling Al what he wants him to say to Holly, and he he actually goes through like a couple different versions. Like he never like says stop, actually say this, but it's like he he's working it out as he's saying to Al. Yeah. And in the end, the thing he most wants Al to tell Holly is that he's sorry he wasn't more supportive of her in her career. The movie's very much about masculinity in the period in a way that's mm. kind of it's it's quite subtle. But then um, you have that moment with Al at the end. And that is like, Al gets his dick back and uses it to shoot a German guy. Like, it's so, <laughs> it's so like restored masculinity imagery. And like, yeah, that, that, that bit made me go, <laughs> what? I love Al. Yeah. And I love him buying like 10 Twinkies and so forth. And it's really, it's only kind of two very small moments in the film. Yeah, not yeah. very small but like two two moments in the film which is on the like radio thing to john he tells him about shooting the boy and then at the end when he shoots carol but the combination of those two moments is like weird 
Like that's, yeah. that's because the mass other the masculinity stuff about John feels really subtle and like nuanced. Yeah, it's it's integrated and... <laughs> into this larger like thing in his relationship with Holly that isn't just about his masculinity. Anyway, <laughs> I do love at the end before the Carl shooting that despite having only spoken to each other over the radio this whole time, him and John recognize each other. And they this big it's hug. like fucking sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> and then I, I love when they give this big hug and then Holly's just stuck there in the other third of the frame. <laughs> that was sort of something actually I didn't, for all my exposure to, to Die Hard, I didn't realize how much, particularly once Al is involved that like there are all these other characters other than john holly and hans that you're constantly hopping around to i i think because references to die hard are so like what john mcclain is up to and his big beats and his famous scenes that the fact that die hard is actually outside of john something out of a ensemble, ensemble movie uh, doesn't really translate into parodies and and homages yeah. yeah i feel like especially in the second half you have all the cops outside a lot of that stuff gets kind of forgotten in the in the cultural memory and it's some of my favorite stuff in in the movie Pugley's is just so funny like he the, the bit where uh al is like they're trying to they're trying to shoot out the lights and, and he then just the light... repeats it like it's his idea yeah yeah while the lights are being shot out behind him like it's The combination of his um, total dismissal of everything Al says and also taking credit for anything Al (laughs) says or does. (laughs) And he's such a like fucking like bulldog over like who's in charge here to Al. And then the FBI show up and he rolls over and shows them his soft little belly so that they can kill him easier. (laughs) Oh my God, the FBI are here. Like the cool kids are coming to my party. Everybody outside of the building, except for Al, has no fucking idea what they're doing and is madly scrambling to appear like they're in charge. Oh, yeah. From up here, then look like you're in charge of jack shit. <laughs> I guess we should talk about Christmas, at least briefly. Yeah, d- d- Die Hard Christmas movie? Question mark, question mark? Fucking duh. Die Hard is so set at Christmas and it comes up so much. <laughs> in the dialogue and in just like like the whole film is suffused with a sense of like everybody needs to get home it's christmas eve you know now i have a machine gun ho 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 they're just con people are just constantly making references to the fact that it's christmas and making christmas jokes there it's just it's hostages taken at a christmas party it's not even the soundtrack has a bunch of christmas songs on it like sometimes when people argue over whether something is a christmas film or not it's because it is very like genuinely mostly from the audience point of view like almost coincidentally set at christmas you notice if you're looking at the set decoration and stuff that it's christmas time or if you just sort of you can infer it from bits of context yeah. but the fact that it's christmas is not particularly relevant to the characters or to the plot or it might only be like parts of it are set at christmas yeah or something like that this is a film set on christmas eve that about a man who is here for christmas yes that takes place at a christmas party where it's christmas in it (laughs) yeah and then over the end credits let snow plays i (laughs) debating whether die hard is a christmas movie doesn't even make sense as a as, as a thing you could do, what's there to debate? What could people actually well, say? Which leads me to my next question, which is why is the idea that Die Hard is a Christmas movie even vaguely controversial? 
let alone a subject of yearly debate. I mean, the only thing I can think of genuinely is people have this idea in their head of Christmas movies are about, like, families or something. And if there's guns... Diet is or... about family. That's true. But, like, they're, they're, it's they're not... It's about reconciling with your family. Just they're like, not at their fucking... house together, though. It doesn't count. Like, that's <laughs> the level of argumentation that you have to be dealing with. Like, why is Home Alone a Christmas movie? Because he's still at their house. Why is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Because they're not a Christmas movie? Because they're at a skyscraper. Like, that is that the best they have? <laughs> like... I also think there's a weird gendered element to it, at least in how the argument is presented, in that... From my point of view, at least, I generally see people who say it's not a Christmas movie presenting it as that's something men say. Men say right. my favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard. Right. Um, which is misogynistic. But anyways, um, no one wants <laughs> to hear that. It's presented almost as if like men are unwilling to deal with all the soppy Christmas feelings of Christmas. And so they pick right. an action movie as their yeah, favorite exactly. Christmas movie. That's the subtext. Um, 100%. You know, like all the all the soppy feelings in Home Alone, <laughs> a movie about a little kid fighting off home invaders and yeah. being a psychopath or whatever. I, to be honest, I don't even really. I don't have a very good sense of what Christmas movies are contrasting with in their mind, but the subtext is that men say they that Die Hard is their favorite Christmas movie because they hate feelings. I find it very strange for many, many reasons. One of the main ones, of course, being that Die Hard is an excellent movie. As well as this weird gender thing that is going on, which is definitely, definitely a thing. Like, men yeah. say Die Hard to get out of saying that it's really, it's a wonderful life or something like that. As if it is a, a man has ever gotten a, a shocked reaction for saying his favorite <laughs> Christmas film is It's a Wonderful Life. But I think I might have said this last week even, that like, in 2005... Somebody who hadn't really thought too much about Die Hard in a while read a Cracked article that was like, do you ever think about how Die Hard's a Christmas movie? And because it blew their mind, they presumed it blew other minds, and they started to communicate this information as if it was controversial. And just that posture of being confrontational about it made other people go, hey, this guy was trying to win an argument. I'm going to beat him. It feels incredibly forced and And now it's arbitrary. 20 years later. Yeah, and I'm just like after the cycle. waiting, waiting for something else to be argued about as being a Christmas movie. Except that, do people even really argue that much about whether th things are Christmas movies apart from Die Hard? Not really. Not really. It's just that one, and um, uh, it is a Christmas movie. Shut up. Yeah. I wish there was something deeper to say about it. Like I was really hoping I would have some like really spicy take on the whole "is Die Hard a Christmas movie?" question, but it's it's a Christmas movie. Like it just is. <laughs> It is bones. Well, 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 if it's not, are you glad you watched Die Hard? I am. I am. I really am. Last year, I sort of made a promise to myself that I wouldn't turn 30 without, without having seen Die Hard. So I was... <laughs> well, that's weird. Yeah, I know, but I'm a weird guy. That's, I think... that's my goal for before I turn 30, is watch Die Hard. Well, as you know, I uh, delayed all the mental breakdowns I was going to have about turning 30 until I'm 33, the cry stage. So I didn't have anything better to do before I was 30 than watch Die <laughs> But yeah, I, I'm still glad that we got to talk about it. I knew so much about Die Hard and it was still such a pleasant surprise, so much of it. Like, I, it didn't come up and I, I didn't send it to you in the end, but I did take a video of just like a shot of John running up some stairs that's 
shot from like a really nice low angle and pans across like you know pipes and stuff and i was like man remember when they made fucking movies a transitional shot of john mcclain <laughs> running up some stairs would make me stop and go damn i need to take a video of that everyone just forgot about shadows motion like it's crazy like it was there's generally something heartbreaking about it but like like there's a lot of great action movies still being made obviously but a lot of them, the like the level of sort of they they almost have to like go so far into like extremes of cool camera motion and like the most complex choreography or whatever. Like they're trying to make up for how shitty the rest of action movies are. <laughs> and and we need to just those are great, you know. John Wick Chapter Four, one of my favorite films this year. There's a whole scene where it's shot like the video game Hotline Miami, and John Wick has a shotgun that breathes fire no notes 10 out of 5 <laughs> stars like great great stuff but we need and i know this is an old complaint we need the mid-budget thriller back we need the mid-budget action film back we need somebody to make something that is a masterpiece without having to be like an art house action film you know and that's why we should re-elect tom cruise as president of movies four more years yeah yeah Christopher Nolan, obviously, still prime minister, especially after Oppenheimer. Like, Yeah, that's where the real power lies, but, you know. Yeah, the president is important for setting the tone of the agenda. All right, let's go back to cruise mode. We're back to you next episode, I think. Correct. We will be discussing a little film called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Out of the flame and fury of the frontier, the Old West lives again as only John Ford can recreate it. People with wonderful characters who have become legend in their own time. Of them all, two are the most memorable, Liberty Valance and the man who shot him. It's a John Ford film, obviously. It is I, a see, John Ford film. I know these things. Correct. I know these things. Correct. And Starring. it has. You you have called this the most ambitious crossover in in film history. Yeah, that was mostly to make fun of the phrase the most ambitious film yeah. crossover." Yeah, but it what? does have John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart in it. And that's not all. Like, that's just Lee the Marvel. headline. I like all those actors. I've only seen like two John Ford films, and I think those are also my only two John Wayne films. Probably The Searchers and Stagecoach. Classic. Those two. The two John Ford films that get on, get the highest on the most greatest films of all time list. And I've seen a few Jimmy Stewart and Lee Marvin films. And I have to say, I fucking love Lee Marvin. I Of course you would. I am very excited to watch The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. It's, uh, it's one of them westerns. Uh, mm-hmm. Like you said, it's it's by John Ford, who... I always feel like I'm not, like I'm not allowed call john ford one of my favorite directors because out of the like hundreds of films he made i've only seen like yeah 15 or 20 or whatever <laughs> um anyway i i love john ford very very much and man shot liberty valance is one of my absolute favorite movies that he made and also it's just always nice to watch a western it is isn't it i'm almost finished the renown cycle which is a bunch of b westerns starring randolph scott and directed by bud Bedeker and they made them late in both men's careers. A series of six or seven films, depending on how you count them together. Because I just sat down one day and was like, man, these are good. I'm just going to keep watching these. Skull of fucking Western. They're so good. Until next time, I'm Kira Maloney. I'm Dean Buckley. 
The song was Carol of the Bells by Live Action Fez. And this was The Sunday Presents. And happy Christmas to you and a very happy birthday to Ed Miliband. Their idea of Christmas, I gotta be here for New Year's. <laughs> what else do you rent? Die Hard 2. <laughs> Joey, this is Die Hard 1 again. <laughs> But we watch it a second time, and it's Die Hard too. Joey, we just saw it. And? And it would be cool to see it again. Yeah! Die Hard!